Will you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3? 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to consider with you what are you looking and living for? What are you looking and living for? So we'll begin to read verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter writes and he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. May the Lord bless to us the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> now, our Heavenly Father, as we come 
into your holy presence to hear your word. We ask that you would quieten our hearts. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, soften our hearts, open our minds, that we might hear the voice of the living God as the Spirit of God takes the things of Christ Jesus and reveals them to us from your word. Teach us your word, we pray, that we might be a good and a godly and a holy people in this world. We pray, Father, that you would receive all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think every one of us would probably say, uh, certainly as we get older in life, that, that time is short, that life is very fragile, that we are here today and perhaps gone tomorrow. Life is uncertain and life is perhaps uh, not as certain as we might like it to be or want it to be. It changes and uh, we all go through these experiences and we all go through these changes. Life is tenuous. Life is fleeting. Life is fragile. And we experience that in our own mortality, in our own diseases and our own illnesses. We, we come face to face with the fact that we are uh, not going to live on and on, but that sooner or later comes the end for all of us because life is truly short. In fact, doesn't even the Apostle Peter say here that with the Lord just one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day, or as Moses said, as we read in Psalm 90, those days or a thousand years with the Lord, they pass away with Him certainly like a breath. They are nothing at all. When Job was afflicted by God, remember it was God who afflicted Job ultimately, it wasn't Satan himself, but it was God who has a lesson for Job. This is what Job said over and over again in his experiences of pain and suffering. He said, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They come to the end without hope. My days are without a breath, he says. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. My days are few. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. My days are past. My plans are broken off. Certainly we could perhaps excuse Job, right, for thinking and for saying those kinds of things given the fact that his suffering was very great. We could excuse him because his pain, as his three friends observed him, was excruciating. And as he contemplates his life, because remember, in the prime of his life, at the height of his powers, at the strength of all of his prosperity, God struck him. And God was going to teach Job that God is God and Job is Job. And that Job is but a passing breath that exists and then is gone. And this is what all of us, I think, come to think of and to realize. The, the less pain you have or the less suffering from disease that you have, perhaps these kinds of thoughts don't enter your mind per se. You go through life and you live life uh, as you might just as a happy person. But just let God strike you. Just let God bring some sort of suffering or trial your way. Sooner or later you will realize that you are very tenuous and very fragile. You hang like a spider on a web's thread. 
Life is short. Life can be broken at any moment. And so, for the Apostle Peter, these are the things that are occupying his mind. He looks into the future and he sees that, that there is going to be some great cataclysmic events that are still to come. And when he thinks about that, he realizes, like we all do, that tempest fugit, time flies. Time waits for no man. Time is short. Life is brief. Only what is done for Christ is going to last. And so the Apostle Peter, as he revolves his mind around the great events that God has revealed to him concerning the future, he makes that statement that one day is just like a thousand years in the sight of God, and a thousand years are just like yesterday, like today. That's how short life is to God. God is eternal. God has no days that you can place on Him, no birthdays, no number, no nothing. God is God. He is everlasting. You can't number His days. He is eternal. It's hard for us, isn't it, to, to come to terms with that when we consider our own mortality. When we consider how fragile we are, that we might be here today, but tomorrow you might not be. And given that sort of uncertainty, we discover how certain God is. That if you're going to rely on somebody, it would better be God that you rely on rather than your family or your spouse because they might be gone tomorrow. The only reliable person or being that exists is none other than our God, our God as our Father, as the Lord Jesus Christ, and as God the Holy Spirit. In simple terms, in plain terms, time is nothing to God. Time is nothing to God. A thousand years or a day, and if creation was just a short while ago, some six or seven thousand years ago, whatever it might be, that's only six days with God. It's nothing. Your breath, your life, your breathing is like a pinprick. It's like the, the head of a pin. It's nothing. Consider the, what you see around you in the, the heavens and their glory. And your life, the microcosm of it, the magnificence of it from the hand of God, lived in this magnificent splendor, and yet it's fragile. And God can take it. I love what the writer to the Hebrews says as he contemplates Jesus Christ and the superiority of Jesus in chapter 1. He says that one day creation itself will perish and that the Lord Jesus Christ will remain, and that like a robe, the earth and the heavens will be rolled up, and they will be changed in a moment. But then, as he thinks of Jesus, this is what he says, quoting from Psalm 102, he says, But you are the same, and your years will have no end. That's Jesus. You are the same, and your years will have no end. In other words, Jesus is everything. Jesus is eternal. Not only that, but He is unchangeable and He is immutable and unchanging. Look around you and see how we age and how we decay and how we tend always to death and the grave because of sin's consequence. But look at Jesus, eternal, unchangeable, unchanging, the everlasting God whose years are the same and who have no end who stands at the right hand of the majesty on high to ever live to make intercession for us, for His people. 
And so, dear brother and sister, in view of how short life is for you, for me, in view of how uncertain life is, I think of what David the psalmist says in Psalm 39 and verse 4, O Lord, make me to know what is my end and what is the measure of my days and how fleeting my life is. And that's not all he said, because in Psalm 39 verse 5, the next verse, Behold, you have made my days as a few handbreadths. You have made my days like the span of my hand, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind is but a breath. That's the perspective of David as God would consider us. My days are like an evening shadow. Psalm 102 verse 11, I wither away like grass. The flower of the field, so beautiful, fades and withers. Does it not? Here today, gone tomorrow. Life fragile, life short. The brevity of life, which if you never really thought about it, you ought to think about it because it's that brevity of life that is designed by God to cause us to reflect seriously on life itself. On eternal matters. To ask ourselves the question, why am I here or what am I living for? And some of you are young people and perhaps you've never really considered that. Or you're struggling to come to grips with that kind of question. What is the purpose for my life and my existence? And some of you who are older, perhaps you've never even really grasped the significance of your life and the purpose for which God gave you life. Time is too short to waste it. Time is too short to squander it. We have been about the business, I feel, as Christians for generations of squandering time. We have everything we need. We are filled with prosperity. We are at the height of power in the world. And look at us. Look at us. Where are we going? What are we living for? Is it for the glory of God and the, the blessing of God in His gospel upon the world? Or am I living for myself? In fact, I have everything I need, don't I? I have my tablet, I have my PC, I have my cell phone. What more do I need? If I need to be in touch with the world, I just look at my phone. My phone will tell me everything I need to know around the world. In fact, I can fine-tune it, can I not? So that I receive what I want and what I don't want. Sometimes I get what I want. A lot of stuff, right? Coming my way, coming your way. And we seem to have a fixation. It's hard because of it's, it's, it's what we see with our eyes, a fixation on these tools of technology that have made us dependent, when instead God has given us His written word, which we should be meditating on and thinking on and, and living within, day and night. But so often... We look to our phones or our tablets or some other source to help us understand things. One thing I know about every Christian is that every Christian has truly come to know and to understand with some perspective their purpose and their meaning for existence. That surely must be the case since Jesus Christ saved you. That now you understand with eyes wide open that life does not belong to you and it's not in your power, but it's in the hands of Jesus. And He can take it today or tomorrow 
or the next day at any time. So because of that, I am required, knowing the shortness and the brevity of life and the uncertainty of my days, like a swift runner and a weaver's shuttle that go back and forth, I'm required to live life seriously as a Christian. For too long we have been too casual. We've been too careless as believers. It's time for us to wake up in this world, to wake up as the church, to wake up as believers. And the Apostle Peter remarkably says words here that are designed to help us and to encourage us along that way. This is what I like about, about this passage. You notice how he puts it posing the question in verse 11. He says, what sort of people ought you to be? Notice how he says it, what sort of people, not what you are, but what sort of people ought you to be. Because he knows that life is fragile and filled with uncertainty. And what's his, his answer to what sort of people ought you to be? There's only one simple answer, that you be holy and you be godly. Because without holiness, nobody gets to see God. Nobody. So we should be holy and godly, he says. I mean, that's another way of saying, isn't it? I must live for Christ and live for His glory only. Only. And I must glorify God whether I eat or drink or whatever I do for His glory. Not for my glory, but for His glory. Now, you know, the interesting thing about the Apostle Peter is that he is very, very conscious that for himself, his end is coming. His own life is drawing to a close. Death is approaching. He knows that the end for him is soon over. So I want to show you that. Just go back to chapter 1 of 2 Peter and look at verse 12. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 12. He says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. He's just given a long list of qualities in the previous verses. I intend to always remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So notice these Christians that he's writing to. Peter says, you know these qualities. And not only that, but you're established in the truth. And I'm still going to remind you, he says, of them. I think it's right, verse 13. As long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. That's John chapter 21. And I will make every effort so that after my departure or after my death, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Notice his language, verse 13. As long as I am in the body, verse 14, the putting off of my body, verse 15, after my departure. What's he thinking about? He's thinking about his death. What's Peter thinking about? He's thinking about soon the words of Jesus regarding my life are coming to pass. I'm going to put off my body. I'm going to die. My death is coming, he says. And because it's coming, and I know it's coming soon, he's concerned, isn't he, for these Christians to whom he's writing, these believers that he is writing to. Notice how he calls them in chapter 3, verse 1. He refers to them as beloved. They are beloved. He says in verse 14, Beloved, verse 17, Beloved. I mean, how close is Peter to these Christian readers? Very close. He calls them Beloved. 
We know from 1 Peter, the first letter of Peter, that many of these Christians were suffering for their faith in Jesus. They were going through trials. They were bearing under these trials. And Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you and so on. He urges them in the light of their sufferings and their trials, which he says is normal. God forbid we would say that we have any suffering. God forbid that we should have disease. Really? In fact, I think we ought to be thankful more that God brings us to our knees like He did Job. That He causes us to have trials and tribulations. Forget this theology that is all about no suffering here and now. In fact, no true biblical suffering is obedience to Jesus to suffer like Jesus now. Because it's this life. There's no suffering then to come. Praise God for that. But in your suffering now, Peter says, I know you're suffering. I know you've got diseases. I know you've got disturbances. I know you're afflicted in every way. He says, I'm writing to you to urge you in the midst of all of that to be like Christ. To be just like Jesus, he says, who suffered for them. Remember how he put it, if anyone suffers as a Christian, Chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, 16. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God for that name, if anyone suffers as a Christian. And so what Peter does in 1 Peter is to teach the believers that suffering is absolutely normal for any Christian. It's normal for a Christian. In fact, he says, don't be surprised, chapter 4, verse 12, at the fiery trial that's soon going to come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I think Christians today think it's strange when they suffer. They think it's wrong that they have some sort of disease, or that disease can be just banished. No! can't be done like that. In fact, Peter is so concerned for them, that he wants them to be in the light of their fragility of life and their sicknesses and weaknesses and trials and persecutions and afflictions. He wants them to be spiritually vigilant. He wants them to be watchful as Christians. He wants them to be alert. You know why he says that? Because Satan, chapter 5, 1 Peter, verse 8, is like a roaring lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour. Peter says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Chapter 5, verse 9. One thing I know about you and about myself is that we all live in this world. Sometimes we want the world to be a better place. We wish it to be a better place, but according to 2 Peter 3, it's going to be destroyed. All that we're working for, all that we're planning for, all that we vote for, whatever it is, all that we're aiming for is improvement. For what? For dissolution. For destruction. See, the one thing that matters is not the earth, though that's an important, I think we should care for the earth, but that's not the, the ultimate issue. No, the ultimate issue is you living on the earth and your life before God and in the sight of God. You see, every believer, like every unbeliever, lives in this world, but we as Christians are not of this world, are we? No, we used to belong to the world. We used to follow the, the world and the course of this world. We used to be like the world, but not anymore. 
By God's grace, by the love of Christ, we have been redeemed, we have been saved, and we have been saved out of the world, though we live in the world. And here in this world, I must be a Christian. Salt and light, speaking to my generation, living my life as a holy and godly person, Peter says. And every believer surrounds, is surrounded by sin and wickedness and evil. But you know, it's not just out there that evil exists and sin exists because Peter says it even exists in the church. He says back in chapter 2 that, of 2 Peter that false teachers are going to arise just like false prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, what is a false teacher uh, working for? He's not working out there in the world. He's working in the church. And there's much deception in the church, right? I mean, Christians are biblically illiterate largely because they're not taught. They have no idea. In fact, what governs them is their experiences, not the, the, the authority of the Word of the living God, but what they experience, what they feel like today, tomorrow. That's what governs their life and their existence. So the church has trouble. The Old Testament, Israel had trouble, didn't they? False teachers, what did they do? Chapter 2, verse 1, they bring in destructive heresies. Destructive heresies. You know, heresy is like that. It destroys everything it touches. False teaching affects everybody and everyone. And it's a dangerous thing. And Peter says that there are many who follow their fleshly way of life. Chapter 2, verse 2. And so bring blasphemy on the truth, on the gospel, and on the Son of God Himself. Now, yes, I'm fully aware the church at large has internal troubles. It sure does. And Peter is thinking through these things. Every Christian should think through them. And Peter just brings them back to our minds here in chapter 3. And let me remind you briefly, in chapter 1, the Apostle Peter has stressed the urgent need for Christians to cultivate a godly character. An urgent need. Not just you must be godly, but there's an urgency to the issue. That you need to make every endeavor, and I need to make every endeavor to be a godly Christian. What do I think about in the day? How can I be godly and holy? We have to grow in Christ, he says, to be holy, to be like Christ. And the way you do that is very simple. You need to be grounded in the truth. If you're not grounded in the truth, what knowledge do you have? Certainly not the knowledge of God. Certainly not the knowledge of Christ. You see, knowledge and understanding go hand in hand together. But it's not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It's so that I might understand the truth of the gospel. That I might understand my God who has revealed himself to me. That's chapter 1. Be about the business of developing your Christian character. That's number 1. Number 2. In chapter 2... He says, look, these false teachers, they pose danger to the church, to the Christian. But their end, the day of judgment, is their destruction. They won't survive. And there's a destructive nature to their teaching. There's a lot of false teaching out there, isn't there? It's destructive. It's ruining the church and it's lead people astray. But now, in chapter 3, here's Peter with his own death approaching. The days are getting shorter for him. He can see it before him. He recognizes it. So he looks to the future. 
He lifts up his eyes, as it were, and he sees into the future well, what, what God is going to do and the things that are going to happen. And he stresses that in the midst of what God is going to do, every Christian needs to have hope and to be patiently waiting and watching for Jesus. In fact, he's, like he says, these are the last days. This is the end of the ages. And Peter was living in the end of the ages himself. He, he looks at these last days in which he lives, and you'll notice what he says in verse 10. He calls it the day of the Lord that is coming. And in verse 12, he calls it the day of God. And then at the end of the chapter, he talks about the day of eternity. So we're going to go through, he says, or we're going to experience this day of the Lord, this wrath, and this day of God. He says that's coming upon the world. So now what is chapter 3 about? Because it's a very wonderful chapter, you know. First of all, Peter says in verses 1 through 7, what are these last days really going to be like? He describes them. Then secondly, in verses 8 through 10, he says, what's going to happen? I'm going to tell you, he says. So what the days are going to be like, 1 through 7, what's going to happen in these days, 8 through 10, and then finally, verses 11 through 18, what you should be like in view of these days that are coming. What you should be like and I should be like. Now you know, dear brother and sister, as much as I would like, and I'm sure you would like America or the world to be Christian, it's not going to be Christian. In fact, you'll notice in chapter 3 here that there's a confirmation that this earth and this world contains unbelief, contains wickedness and evil, and when Christ comes, He comes with wrath and judgment for an unbelieving world. When Jesus comes, He comes to do that, but He also comes to deliver His people. So there's a twofold aspect to the coming of Jesus. Let's not have this theology that has one coming and church is gone and then everything is on, you know, there's this tribulation on earth. Where do you get that in the New Testament? You don't get it anywhere. You don't find it. What you have is Jesus coming in great glory and power to bring wrath and destruction upon His enemies and to save His people. Why on earth does Peter say here, what manner of people ought you to be since that's coming? Because it's going to come upon the world, and you're in the world, he says. What kind of people ought you to be? I mean, if the church is gone, these things don't matter. No, Peter says, this is coming upon the world. And when it comes, Jesus is coming to save you, if you're a believer. And he's coming to bring judgment and wrath upon an unbelieving world. You know, this is not something new, by the way. This is not some new scheme. No, this is exactly what Peter says here and what the Scriptures teach. Because look what he says in verse 1 and verse 2. He says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in both of them, my first letter and this letter, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. You should remember the predictions of the prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So, verse 1, I'm writing to you in case you've forgotten stuff. Verse 2, you need to remember what the prophet said and what the apostle said, which is nothing less than the word of the living Christ. Why does he say that? Why does he say, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of rem um, reminder to remember? Why? Because we forget 
so easily, don't we? We forget. That's why we have the Lord's Supper today, because we are called to remember Jesus, because we are so prone to forget. So much other stuff going on, right? See, one of the tragedies for the church and for Christians is that we might forget that God is actually working in the present. When He is working in the present, right now. We have our Old Testament to remind us that God worked in the past, didn't He? I mean, what's the whole purpose of the Old Testament? To show us, reveal to us the working of God in the past. But you know, we, we might be like an unbeliever. We might come up with these thoughts in our minds. Well, you know, things seem to just be carrying on. There doesn't appear to be much change. You know, the, where is Jesus? Jesus said He's coming again, but where is He? Why hasn't He come? In fact, He's still not come, right? You might get a little discouraged from that fact that Jesus still has not come. Where is the Lord, you might say. But look what Peter says. In verse 1 he says, let me remind you of what the Old Testament prophets said and what the apostles also told us. He talks about stirring them up, right? I'm stirring up your sincere mind. You know that word stir is, is the word to arouse completely. To bring to bring to Life in all its power immediately to wake up knowing exactly what's going on. It's like a lion sleeping out there in the, in the African jungle and you happen to be walking by and he's fast asleep and you go up and you pull his tail. Do you think he shrugs himself and says, what's going on? Now he will come awake instantly with rage. And before you can say to him, how do you do? He is, thank you very much. Right? Aroused in a moment. Peter says, listen, I'm arousing your mind through what the prophets wrote and I'm arousing your mind through what I as an apostle and the other apostles said. Later on he says, let me tell you what Paul wrote in the scriptures. And so here he's reminding them, isn't he? Stirring them up. Now, you know, I find that a great source of encouragement because I need stirring up. You know, life goes on as normal. Every day is the same. And you just carry on through life and you wonder, well, you've got to get through today and you get through today. I need a reminder to be stirred up, to be changed. This is the word of the prophets. This is the word of the apostles. This is a call, by the way, to pay attention to biblical history. Now, I'm a lover of history. World history. Any history. In fact, everything behind me is history. So I love it. Right? What can I know about tomorrow? Only what God tells me. In fact, I know that sufficient unto the day is its evil. So therefore, do not be anxious about life, what you will eat, what you will drink. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all those things, food, drink, clothing, they will be added unto you, right? Because I'm not to worry about tomorrow. But God has actually told me here in Second Peter some of the things that are going to happen through the Apostle Peter. Now, can I know that for sure? Can I trust this God that tomorrow these things that He's talking about in the future, that they will happen? Yes. You know why? Because He spoke in the past. 
And when God spoke in the past, everything God said in the past came to pass, just like He said it. And if He could speak in the past and everything came to fruition from what He said in the past, why would God be different tomorrow? It's the same God that I'm dealing with, right? So I have to examine history. I have to study the activity of God in history. Has God ever done something of major significance? Well, yeah. Number one, creation. How big is that, right? You wouldn't be here, right? No creation. So, yeah, God has done something big. Creation. It's quite a foolish question, right? Has God ever done anything of significance? It's a, waste, a question to waste your time on. Of course God is significant and done significant things. I mean, look what Peter says here in verse 3. He says, look, there are going to be scoffers coming, right? Mockers. That are going to come in the last days, and what are they going to do? They're going to do two things. Number one, they're going to scoff, and number two, they're going to commit sin. Verse 3, knowing this first of all, first of all, you should know this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. What is, the, what is out there in the world today, in the church today, scoffers? Following their own sinful desires, bringing destructive heresies upon the church. And one thing I know about the world is the world loves its sin. In fact, the world can't exist without its sin. The world wants its sin, wants to continue in its sin. The problem is that... From the world's perspective, here are all these Christians that we have to engage with. And these Christians keep telling us that we need to repent. And these Christians keep telling us that we need to believe in Jesus. Saying, no, you can't do that and you can't do that. That's what the world sees us like, right? Yeah, they do need to repent. You know why? Jesus is coming. That's what Peter says. But they refuse that. They reject that. That's why they ask their question in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? That's the scoffer, right? That's his question. Where is the, the promise of His coming? It's not a sincere question. It's a scoffing question. It's from mockery. They're not sincerely asking, well, when is Jesus coming? They don't believe Jesus is coming. They reject these kinds of things. Nothing changes. Everything is the same. Creation, you say, well, it just continues. There's been no activity by God in the past. Why should we expect activity by God in the future? Peter said, huh, wrong. They deliberately overlook this fact, he says. That God with one word said, let there be light, light. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. Right? The Word of God. He spoke, and things came into existence. So when they, they scoff and they mock these scoffers of, where is Jesus, and nothing has changed, we know that God has intervened. He has intervened in creation. He's intervened at the flood. And did he not sovereignly intervene at Calvary when he sent his son? Right? That's the greatest intervention by God in human history. Jesus came into the world. Christmas is coming. That's what, we, that's what it's all about, right? Jesus came into this world. The greatest invasion of God into humanity 
God became man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that God-man is going to come again with such glory and power. As certain as He came the first time, He is coming the second time. And He is bringing God's final judgment upon the world, upon unbelievers, and He's bringing salvation for His people to take us to be with Himself. The prophets, you know, what did the prophets speak about? Judgment. They were always speaking about judgment, weren't they, to the people, to the nations. Just read any prophet. Thus says the Lord, and then follows the Word of God. The prophets pronounce judgment, but the scoffer says, where is it? Where is this Jesus that you keep telling us is coming back? No, everything, look, if you look around you, everything just continues. Everything is the same. Nothing has changed. That's the scoffer's word. That's what they say. They reject the judgment of God because it would be a judgment upon themselves. They reject any judgment. They follow, as verse 3 says, their own sinful desires. These are the people you work with. Nice people, kind people, good people, but lost in ruin and sin. Just like you were and I was. These are the people that surround us. The great difference between them and the believer is that they want their sin. They love their sin. They can't give up their sin. They don't want to give up their sin. They want to keep it because it's pleasure. They don't want any talk of Jesus and no talk of God's judgment, no talk of God's wrath. The world doesn't want that. And so the world falls back on the old familiar story. Show me the evidence of God intervening. Show it to me. Where is Jesus? Where is this promise of His coming? Now you know, If something is promised, what does it do to you? Raises your expectation, doesn't it? I mean, if you told me, and I hope you do, Russ, I've got $10,000 for you, right? I would expect that. Because if you didn't deliver, I would think something of you. You failed to keep your word, right? used to be that you could hand clasp another man's hand. And that was as good as his, his... His word is as good as that, right? Not anymore. No longer the case. The the scoffers and the unbelievers of the world even today, as they were in Peter's day, saying the same thing. It's not just a demand for evidence. You know, everything's the same. So where is this promise that you're talking about? But it's really a denial of the evidence. They want the evidence, but then when you give them the evidence, they deny the evidence. There's one thing I know about God is that He is, since He's unchangeable and since He cannot lie, He always tells the truth, and therefore everything that God has said can be believed. The Word says that. The Bible teaches that. What does an unbeliever have? Well, what Word is authoritative for you? What gives you authority? On what are you basing your life? Where I have a word from an unchangeable God who has actually proven all the things that He has done, seen the results, and His word confirms it over centuries. And here you come and you say, where? I need evidence. Wasn't that what the Jews did in Jesus' day? 
Show us a sign, Jesus. But I just did a sign. But show us a sign. We, we, we need to see a sign. Jesus is the sign, isn't he? He's a, he's a stone and a rock of stumbling. He's a rock of offense. Because he shows them the truth and shows them the Father. They stumble and reject him. They don't want that. That's the truth. And they don't love the truth. Therefore, they've got to get rid of the truth. And so all the promises that have been made about Jesus are made in the Old Testament, certainly regarding His first coming and, and plenty about His second coming. The scoffers deny God's promise. And Peter says in verse 5 here that that's deliberate on their part. He says, look what he says, verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Nothing continues the same. Here's a deliberate denial, right? Now, you know, if you deliberately overlook something, you're making a statement about something. Right? You deliberately do it. It's not like you made a mistake and it slipped your mind. No, you deliberately overlook it. No. Not happening. So their statement is really, the statement they're making is a rejection of the word of God himself. But look what Peter says about the word of God. Verse 5, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Creation is by the word of God, he says. They deny that. But if you want some more evidence, look at verse 6. And that by means of these water, the world that then existed, this is Noah's day, was deluged with water and perished. Same word. God says, let there be rain. Let there be a flood. Flood. Gone. Right? His word. He spoke and everything came into existence. He spoke and he destroyed the world because that's what he said he was going to do. God keeps his promise. Right? Peter says, that's not all. You want more proof, he says? Well, look at verse 7. Right? So, the flood in verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens... And the earth that now exists, that you look out there and see. Those heavens and those earth, they are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. How certain is this destruction that is coming? It's as certain as creation, and it's as certain as the flood, because God spoke it. And you notice all along, by that same word, by the word, by the word. What's Peter saying in verse 7? Look, when he, when he includes, right, the earth and the heavens existing for fire to be destroyed, but it's that day being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. It's going to be a day of judgment for the destruction of the unbeliever. It's going to be a day of judgment for the fiery consumption of this earth and the heavens. And Peter explains this fiery judgment, doesn't he? I mean, look at verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Look at verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Everything you see up there burned, right? The heavens and the earth consumed. You know this phrase, the day of the Lord, every time, it's used 13 times in the Bible, every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's always 
in the context of judgment. Every single usage of the day of the Lord, it's judgment. It's wrath from God. In fact, Paul tells the Thessalonians, doesn't he? In chapter 5, verse 2, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Destruction will come suddenly. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. These are the people you live with and interact with. In the grocery store, in the doctor's office, at school, these are the people. You know what's interesting about all this, about God's judgment upon the world and upon unbelievers? Is that not only is it certain to happen because of what God did in the past, creation and the flood, by his word. But Peter says, look, there's also a word for the believer. It's not all just doom and gloom for the world, for the ungodly, for the unbeliever. I mean, look what he says in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Like these people. Everything continues the same. Jesus is not coming. There's no such thing. Okay? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, his word, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who's he patient towards? You. Who are the you? The people he's writing to? Now listen very carefully. The Lord is not... Uh, uh, is not, sorry, the, but is patient towards you, not wishing or willing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should come to repentance. He's not talking about the ungodly here. Their destruction is certain. Now, if you ask me, can the ungodly be saved? Yes, they can be saved, because all of us were ungodly at one time. But these are the ungodly who will never repent and never turn. And God is patient toward you about these things, he says. Not willing that you should perish, but that you should reach repentance. Pay attention, he says, to what I'm saying. You see, the reason for the delay. Where is Jesus and his coming? The reason for the delay is because the elect of God are not all yet brought in. The sheep are not all gathered in yet. But they are being. They are being saved. They are being brought in. They are saved by Jesus. Not one of his sheep will ever be lost. I know them. They know me. They hear my voice and they follow me. And I am their good shepherd. I will lead them to springs of everlasting water. I will feed them with the finest food. Salvation, right? When all of that is accomplished, when the last of the sheep of Christ is saved, then the trumpet of God will sound and the archangel will give the command and Jesus shall come forth from heaven with his saints, their souls, and there shall be a great resurrection of the believers' bodies, reunited with their souls because that's the great purpose of God. And so we shall always be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4. But don't forget 1 Thessalonians 5. But for the unbeliever, 
There will be wrath and judgment when Jesus comes. This is Second Peter. When, when Jesus comes, the destruction, the judgment of the ungodly take place, and the salvation of his people is accomplished. And then the earth and the heavens are consumed by fire. Why? Because there's something better coming. A new heavens and a new earth. Now you know the heavens are pretty good. Right? Uh, Hubble Space Telescope's taken some fantastic pictures, but apparently those pictures are nothing compared to the James Webb Telescope. Nothing. Sharper images, clear, in fact, infrared technology saying that the galaxies that we see out there have not actually just been newly formed like a Big Bang Theory, but are ancient, which has caused all kinds of problems for evolutionary theory amongst astronomers and so on. Well, that's to be expected, of course from our point of view, isn't it? Consumed. The heavenly bodies. Consumed. Gone. What kind of power does it take to just speak a word? Gone. Fire. Right? Or the world. Our world. One word. Destroyed. Dissolved. For a better world. For a glorious world. For a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness rules forever and ever. That is my hope. That is my hope. Jesus is coming for me. Because I believe this gospel. Coming for me. Coming for you. To save you. Finally. Yes, he has saved us now. It is true. But look, still sin in this body. And when he does come, and then the resurrection, there shall be a change, right? And we shall have a body like unto his own glorious body. John says we shall see him as he is. Everybody who has this hope within him purifies himself. That's what Peter's saying. What kind of people should you be since these things are going to happen? They're coming soon. Doesn't Jesus say, behold, his last word in the book of Revelation, behold, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. So, you notice in the light of verse 10, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and these things will happen. In the light of that future dissolution, Peter says something to me and to you, verse 11, what? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? How must I live? Verse 12, waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God. He tells me to continue in hope, waiting. Waiting. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And I must wait for it, he says, and verse 14 is his conclusion, right? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, or at peace. That's his conclusion to verse 13, which says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know what God's telling you? I keep my word. That's what God is saying. I keep my promise. I kept it in the past. When I say something, it happens. I'll keep it in the future. You can trust me. I cannot lie. I cannot change. Therefore, you are not consumed. 
O Jacob, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, change not. How, how certain is this fiery dissolution to be? As certain as creation. As certain as the flood, right? That's how certain it is. In the midst of this an incredible fiery dissolution and the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he takes us to be with himself. He saves us. Gives us life. Finally, home with the Lord unto the day of eternity, forever and ever and ever. Are you looking for that? You see, what are you looking for and what are you living for? You ought to be looking for the day when Jesus comes, which is a day of fiery wrath and a day of salvation. But you ought to be looking at from your perspective, waiting and hastening that day. How can I hasten the day as if I can bring it closer? By living a life of godliness. I'm not taken up with these kinds of things too much. I'm just living for Christ and that day as it were for me draws closer and closer and closer. But if I'm not living a life of godliness that day is some, well it's out there somewhere. But the more godly you are, the more you want righteousness that day will seem to be drawing closer and closer to you. Until that day, Peter says, we ought to, verse 11, live lives of holiness and godliness. In fact, he says we must be diligent, right, to be found by him without spot, without blemish and at peace in this world. Because life is short and life is fragile and uncertain. But for us who know the truth, we live in hope. Do we not? Are you hopeful that Jesus is coming for you? To deliver you, to save you. So let me give you some applications, conclusion. Number one. Well, I discover out of all of this in the horrific dissolution of the ungodly and destruction of them, their judgment, that we must develop a love for the lost. Now, you know, that sounds cliche, because I think it is in many respects. We have developed our schemes of evangelism. Even our schemes of reformed evangelism. This is not about evangelism, per se, like we've designed. This is about me looking at a person in the grocery store or next to me in the dentist's office and feeling pain in my heart for them. That's evangelism. Like Paul, right? I have great sorrow, he says, an unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren. That's pain. Unceasing anguish. But you see, we don't really do that. We've got our reformed schemes of how we can apologetically offend not defend, but offend the gospel. Ah, you see, you can't answer my objections. So therefore, why aren't you a Christian? I'm not interested in that. I want nothing to do with that. What I'm interested in is developing for myself a pain for my brothers of the flesh, wherever they might be. Like Paul. I have a feeling that's the hardest thing maybe to do in the world. To have a pain for the lost. 
learn to feel their pain of being lost. Because you're too comfortable, and so am I. And you just go about your business, and so do I. And this is the existence of the world. First application, learn to love the lost with pain. Second, I must prepare myself for Jesus coming, right? How do I do that? I live a life of godliness and holiness, which is not easy in the world, right? I must pursue the Lord. I must pursue Christ and His glory. And I must let nothing get in the way of that pursuit. I must have Jesus now. Because if I don't have Jesus now, why should I have Jesus in the future? Now, today. I came that they might have life. And that they might have it what? More abundantly, right? That's why Jesus came. To give me life, to give you life, eternal life, abundant life. Now, I know when I get there, beyond my mind and what I can comprehend. But now, there's no room for misery. There's no room for being a miserable Christian. In fact, I don't even think that exists. We are to be joyful, thrilled by Christ, by who He is and by what He has done until He comes for me. Let's pursue that. Third application. You should leave time to God. You should leave time to God. You can't do anything about it. But here's the, here's the application. If you have wasted time, stop. If you've squandered time, stop. Because I've squandered time. And I know you've squandered time. Let us stop. Let there be no more squandering of our lives and wasting time. Stop. Instead, let me devote myself and the remainder of my life to Christ. To knowing Him, to loving Him, to be found in Him, having His righteousness. To pursue Jesus in this life. Devote my life, whatever remains. So look how Peter ends, look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing all these things, take care. That you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So don't get sidetracked by stuff, right? Because there's stuff out there, man. Don't follow what the preacher says on YouTube. Don't follow all that stuff. Follow the Word. Study the Word for yourself. Read it. Scripture interprets Scripture. Not the preacher. Scripture interprets Scripture. And let Scripture do its work in us and through us. Verse 18. But grow in the grace of Jesus. And grow in the knowledge of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. To Him be the glory now and to the day of eternity forever and ever. May the Lord help us to know what we're looking for and what we're living for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for these wonderful truths that You've brought before us. Teach us your ways, we pray. Life is short, life is uncertain. And though it's fragile for us, Father, give us eyes to see that the world is perishing and lost. And give us unceasing anguish like the Apostle Paul to be concerned.
to care, to love. To speak of the truth of the living God who spoke his word in the past and it came to be and who shall speak it again in the future and it shall be. And so, Father, thank you for these things. Put our trust in you, we pray. Help us to, help us to love you, to treasure you, and to walk in your ways. Change us, we pray. Give us new hope. Encourage us in these evil days in which we find ourselves. And stir us up to love and good deeds, we pray. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.